0: Hi, welcome to Two Guys in Search of an Argument. This is John Heinz. I'm here today, as always, with my co-hosts, Peggy Bennett and Jim Gentile. Hi, guys. Hi,
1: Good John. Good morning. This is Jim. I'm the greatest philosopher of the 21st century. Uh, oh, so boy. I've heard...
0: <laughs> So I've heard he said you're just digging. He's digging in early, um, going with making the references that nobody gets. It's good. Um, it's, uh, it is 9.05 p.m. in Shanghai on a rainy, rainy beginning of 2018, and I just woke up. So if my voice sounds particularly low, it's not because it's not because uh, there's something wrong with the recording. It's because I just woke up after falling asleep for an hour. Peggy yes. is going to introduce our guest today. We're very excited to have some special guests.
2: Yes, I'm excited to introduce Courtney and JT, who are on our podcast today from Ada, Michigan. And Courtney and JT are old friends of mine. Courtney's an older friend than JT. I think I've known Courtney since sixth grade. And JT, I think I met 20 years ago at your wedding. And they are going to talk to us a little bit about being in the Navy and prisoner of war training and wherever else the conversation takes us. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney and JT.
3: Thank you. Thank you, JT here. Courtney just stepped out to address okay. the, uh, <laughs> a quick issue, but uh, she'll be right back.
2: Yeah, Courtney and JT have uh, four children. Uh, the youngest is what,
3: a first grader? Yeah, Jocelyn's uh, six years old. She's a first grader.
1: How old How old are the rest of your kids, JT?
3: Camille is seven, and then Skylar is 12, and Jack is 14. He's a freshman. In high oh, school. wow. 14. So the fun
1: years are just beginning.
3: That's one way to phrase it, yes. Okay, now
1: I have three <laughs> grown children, so I have some experience in this matter.
2: So, JT, are you ready for uh, Christmas break to be over so those kids can go back to school? <laughs>
3: Yeah, Christmas break is always kind of an interesting term that they use it that way. It's really not a break for us parents. Uh, we're we're ready for the uh, school to start, taking over some of the uh, some of their the busy time. The question of uh, what are we doing today gets really old after two weeks. So
1: I take it from that, JT, that you're in favor of full year-round schooling for children in the United States, based on what you just said.
3: Yeah, well, I would say it depends on what they do in school, but yeah, I'm I'm open to the idea. <laughs> I think it seems like a good idea. Where
1: did you guys meet? Did you guys meet at the Naval Academy or after the Naval Academy?
3: We, Courtney, you and both and I, went to the uh, Naval Academy, correct? Yes, we both were classmates at the Naval Academy, um, but we I, we were in different circles there. I'll put it that way, and uh, we didn't meet or start dating till we were in flight school. So after we graduated Naval Academy, and we were both stationed in a small town in Mississippi called Meridian, uh, where they had a, a flight. A jet training base there and that's where we started uh, we started dating
2: i didn't I don't think I knew that so you didn't so does that mean like before flight school is is what undergrad is what we would call undergrad and flight school is kind of like grad school
3: yeah the Naval academy is like um just like any four-year college really uh, except for the the military component of it so you know four years in Annapolis, Maryland and uh, I was a political science major and but you get a bachelor of science if you graduate the naval academy because even as a political science major you're taking engineer and math courses all throughout your four years there but you graduate with the regular bachelor of science and then uh, once you graduate during your senior year you have a night where you select what you'd like to do when you graduate so they call it service selection night and that's at that night based on your rank in your class you get to pick what job you would like once you graduate, and obviously there are some requirements. You have to be physically uh, qualified to fly, to be marine, or things like that. But yes. So were you guys in
1: the Marines?
3: No, we were no. both Navy. Navy. Okay,
1: but some people come out of the Naval Academy and go into the Marines. Is that right? That's
3: yes. correct. Yeah.
2: Courtney, are you back on?
4: I am. I'm back. Hi, Courtney.
2: So what? What was, I was your trying to maintain
4: so... radio silence? <laughs> so I had to. Take some preventive
2: measures. That's okay. So J T said he majored in poli sci. What you? What was your uh, major?
4: Economics, but <laughs> I was Econom- I was political really? science, and but they had twenty uh, five page papers, and I, I can only write a ten page paper, and then I've said uh-huh. all I need to say so I said <laughs> economics.
0: Well, and you guys weren't the same year.
4: Um, we, 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 we were. were. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you well, knew each other? We didn't. Uh, we didn't. <laughs> Not really. Hes a, he likes to claim i was I was too busy uh noticing other guys ah. is that true yeah
3: the odds were uh were were against me in well, her recognizing me that, the but that's got to be time. true it, in the service yeah.
1: generally no I mean aren't there isn't the ratio of men to women or at least twenty years ago was significantly one sided right? So. One-sided, right? Right. So basically, so, Courtney
2: had a lot of men from which to choose, <laughs> is what you're saying. A
1: problem that you're familiar right with, right Peg, ID. too. I'm sure.
0: So. <laughs> oh yeah, I've always had yeah. that problem. So you guys both knew you wanted to be pilots. Yes.
4: Uh, no, um, I think it was for me because when I went to the Naval Academy, it was all so it was all a big surprise because I was recruited to go there to play volleyball, and um, I got there. I had no idea any. I, I had no exposure to the military prior and didn't know even what, was, what my offerings were but, um, and didn't know how to swim. So there was a lot of things I had to catch up on. And so, but flying was the only thing that seemed like it would be worthwhile to do out of there because driving a ship, being a Marine, all the other options weren't really interesting. But the only problem was the swim test for the aviation part was a little harder. So that was the thing that scared me a little. So I, I went to the YMCA. A lot during the summer.
2: Yeah, the idea of you driving a ship just kind of makes me laugh because you've never been a um, stellar swimmer as long as I've known you.
1: <laughs> how long have you guys known each other? How old were you guys when you first
2: met? We were sixth graders. So, so well, what Courtney, is that like? Twelve here's or a something? very
1: important thing. What embarrassing story can you tell us about Peggy from when she was in like junior high school or high
4: school? Oh my goodness, I don't know oh, how many Peggy is.
2: Yeah, that's hard. I've never embarrassed
1: oh, myself really? ever. Yeah. Except yeah. on the podcast.
2: Right. Exactly.
4: <laughs> no, Peggy's great. I mean, We love Peggy. Probably, uh, Everyone
1: loves Peggy.
4: Yeah. I, I couldn't come up with anything, even if money was involved.
1: How much money? Ooh, how much money are we nice. talking? Thanks, Courtney. I mean, how much yeah. money are we talking? Because, you know, <laughs> I could. I, I might be willing to pay a significant amount
4: yeah Peggy is the best friend a person i can believe have. that I, can I
1: believe say. that
0: so you yeah. guys are currently in the you're in the you're in the greater grand rapids area
4: yeah right now we're in a rental wouldn't it be the in grander
1: India? grand rapids yeah. area wouldn't that be a more appropriate yeah. but courtney you still are you yeah. you the one are you fly for Southwest?
4: yes, i've been with Southwest since two thousand six yeah
1: i love southwest Airlines. I yeah. would do a free commercial. Southwest Airlines. They are, without question, my favorite airline, and I fly them whenever I can.
4: A free commercial. I like to tell people that Southwest is sort of like your that favorite diner you like to go to, where it's not all frills, but you just feel good. Well,
1: okay, I like mm-hmm. diners too, as well. The thing, there are many reasons I like Southwest Airlines, uh, but uh, I, I, when I was at the National Labor College, I used to help sometimes teach an arbitration class. And we would get representatives from the flight attendants uh, union and from Southwest Airlines there, and they all spoke very highly of the company, uh, which is not always uh, yeah, which is not always the case when you're talking to people that are labor representatives that they speak highly about the company that they work for. But that was the case with regard to Southwest Airlines.
4: The pilots that we get from uh, that have come from another airline. Give me a better perspective because they talk about how much better it is well, there to work for Southwest. So, John, I would anyways. start
1: working on Southwest becoming a sponsor for the podcast. I think that's project okay. for you to work. Let's on. do it.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, I don't even know how to ask questions about um, training for the for the Navy and the Naval Academy and prisoner of war training. So, does one of you or both of you want to? Can
1: I ask a question? Yeah, go for it. So I want to ask a question I would like to get an answer from both of you. What, uh, What is the one thing that you would like to change about the Navy, if you could?
3: It's a good question. Change I mean, the Navy. like
1: every institution, Navy. I'm sure it's not perfect. So what is the one thing that you would most like to change about it?
2: You mean like when they were there or things they think about now or both?
1: Oh. Uh, or Either way or both. Okay. I don't know. Maybe what the problems they had when they were there have been solved. I don't know. I don't know a lot about the Navy except what I read in the New York Times. So my father was in the Navy during World War II, but that was a different experience, I'm sure.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah I think uh, that's, that's a very thought-provoking question. I think the uh, what you're, you are kind of hit on the, the key term, any kind of big institution or big organization, uh, system or bureaucracy or anything like that. And I, I think that's the one thing that I think can always be changed to made more efficient. I have not the slightest clue where I would start to do that. But, you know, the the thing we all that was always said to us or our little mantra when we were in there was uh, it was always the needs of the Navy. So there were things that you were trying to do as an individual. Um, and if they didn't align with the needs of the Navy, you were out of luck. Uh, and so For example, Courtney and I were married in 97, and the first time we were able to live together was in 2001. So for the first four years of our marriage, we were stationed in different bases. And then uh, I was the one who came up for new orders first, and I tried to get co-located, what we call it, stationed in San Diego. And the Navy said, that's real nice. You have all the qualifications for the job you're looking for in San Diego we don't need you there we need you in a different place and it didn't really matter what the uh i guess i'd say if they were more accommodating they might have been able to retain one of us for a longer period of time but that was a quick lesson of hey you're kind of at the whim of the system and so you're you know your your ability to control and make decisions is somewhat limited. There's no bitterness in that, or there's no regret at all. It's just it's a realization that you have a, a large system, a, a military force, and you know you have different people all throughout the organization, and everybody's you know sometimes they're just like you got to do that, and we'd all say you, you got to suck it up. That's the needs of Navy, and uh, you know you embrace the suck and you try to make the best of, of that situation. But I think that's where I would look is in a huge bureaucracy or system. How can you make it more efficient and more responsive to the members' needs? Um, The tricky part in that, though, is that you have a Navy that is, you know, is part of a government. So the government funding and those needs kind of dictate that.
2: Does that mean, I mean, you two were both super highly trained in what you were doing. And so does that mean that there are so many of you that are as skilled and they invested as much mo- time and money into so many people that, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I would think they would want to retain you and you're making it sound like, nope, if it's, if it, cause you would have stayed if they could have been more accommodating.
4: Yeah, that's exactly it. I think where you kind of get surprised. Cause like you said, um, you have people, we know the money that was involved, but at the same time, I don't know. Cause I mean, you take an oath, I'm going to do whatever the Navy tells me to do and, um, Do it. So you do it. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh,
1: as much. Well, you don't really have a choice, right?
4: Yeah. And in in a lot of ways, though, um, the not having a choice is what helped you get through a lot of the things that they put you through.
1: But, Courtney, is there anything else other than that that you would have liked to see changed about the Navy?
4: Um, You know, as far as for, for me, I think there was a lack of mentorship for the women. Just because there were a lot of women, both officer and enlisted, making a, a lot of mistakes, and if they had just had some, you know, if they had had some people to to go to to talk to, they could a lot of a lot of things that could have, could be avoided. Uh, you know, the enlisted, they're young, and and so and then here they are, and mostly, obviously, mostly male, and you're not going to have female senior chiefs and and whatnot running around to sort of guide them. And, and, uh, and on the officer side, uh, the same thing, just I would have liked a little more mentorship. Well, um, that, that place.
1: raises another question, if I can be so bold, which is obviously we know that women face special challenges in virtually every workplace. But how was the Navy as a workplace for a woman from your experience compared to other workplaces?
4: As far as uh, my experience, uh, a lot of people like to assume that it's difficult as in like um, I'm being treated a certain way. And I would say the difficulty is actually in not being treated uh, at all. And what I mean by that is uh, I came into flight training right after the tailhook scandal come out. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there was tailhook was a big, it was just basically a giant party. Got a little bit out of hand. Uh, Was it Las Vegas or? Yeah. Vegas. Yeah. That got out of hand. And, um, a a female pilot there who sort of engaged in the activities and then things uh, ramped up and, um, she got very upset and a lot of guys got fired and the Navy did what uh, would seem appropriate, which is to, you know, clean house and make, um, broad statements and that tail hook would no longer happen. And, but anyway, it was, uh, It was something that happened prior to me going into flight school. And so what happened was that instead of you'd say maybe instead of maybe some treat people think mistreated, I was I was just ignored. And so now I kind of tell people when you talk about like, oh, how do we make it better for women? I said, well, you have to be careful because the balance is is if you go too far, then it's you feel isolated, which is a, a lot of how I felt in the very beginning because of that scandal
1: but that's sort of consistent what you what I read a lot is that women and what I've also women have told me is that they just want to be treated you know like colleagues they don't want to be treated special they just don't want to be treated differently than uh, the men on the team or whatever
4: yeah but I guess my point is I wouldn't mind even a little bit of inappropriate behavior instead of feeling like you're being ignored. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'd rather someone say something that's a little uh, slightly over the line than pretend I'm not in the room. Over the line, what I mean by that is like, is uh, what was my winging? Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So
3: when you get winged as an aviator, you you get your golden, you get the wings, which you wear in a uniform. and essentially it shows everyone when you're in uniform that you're a naval aviator and so when you get those wings you earn them uh you have a, a ceremony and they get pinned on and uh as a that that group that's getting winged one of the traditions was to punch you, you get in the- you you punch the wings into your chest right so the wings are just in pins and they're on your uniform and you're in there in uniform nice white uniform and now you're you're going around punching all your buddies in the chest where the wings are worn and so at the end of the night a lot of times a little bit of bloody fist or maybe some bruising stuff on the chest from the wings kind of poking through and stabbing you in the chest so you can imagine Courtney's gets winged and like you said just yeah and as
4: people are drinking more and you know and at one point I got punched on my wings so hard that I kind of flew back and you know JT hearing this story was upset but I guess my point was uh, I I preferred actually getting a little bit hurt to had -hmm. they just refused to punch me at all. I can
2: see that. I mean, I can't understand that, obviously, but I would think it would be horrible to feel like you're just there and nobody acknowledges you. So some acknowledgement, whether it's painful or not, I don't know. It seems after all that. Yes. It kind of makes sense to me.
0: I have a question about the silence thing. So is that an issue or is that something that was cut? Is that it's it, that seems so counter as a complete military outsider. That seems so counter to my impression of what I would think the military would be, which would be really direct people speaking directly to everyone all the time. So the idea that silence might creep in.
1: Yeah. What do you base that well, on? What do you base? John, what do you base that on?
2: Movies, movies.
0: I don't know. I'm just, it's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Just, I mean, the, the, uh, I I have
1: the exact, I mean, the the
0: broader, the, the broader, I mean, the, the the broader thing that I probably was going to ask about that I, I guess I can transition into is that I think of the more I'm at work and the older I get and the more I'm at jobs and the more I'm on teams and trying to get things done in my silly, In this, you know, silly daily circle life work things that I do, the more I frequently catch myself saying to me, to others, and to myself in my head is something along the lines of, "I wish we had a more simple and direct command structure at my my schools so that people could get things done and it was more decisive." So somewhere in my head, I've equated military talk with being direct and, you know, clear and, and, uh, and not really being like other workplaces in, in, in some, you know, in some kind of, in some conversational way. So I'm, I thought I, silence is counter to that in many ways.
1: Well, I think you're, oh, wait, but aren't the, isn't there a distinction between the chain of command, the structure, which I think you're right about, or at least my impression is the same of yours, John, maybe you're, we're both wrong. But versus the culture, where the cultural stereotype of the military is uh, people who are very stoic, who don't complain, who don't speak up. Uh, and again, I uh, that's just a stereotype. I don't know how true that is. But it seems to me the cultural stereotype of somebody who you know takes what happens and accepts it and moves forward is a little bit different. And the the idea of silence, the idea of people accepting whatever they're given seems to me to be consistent with that cultural
3: stereotype. There are two distinctions between, uh, John, what you were talking about and what Courtney was talking about. Uh, And I would agree with you that that was our experience is when it comes to, you know, getting a mission accomplished or doing something, it's very direct. There's a very clear chain of command and there's it, uh, people do speak very directly and you and the mission is always accomplishing the mission is always ahead of you know any anything else really that's the purpose the what Courtney was was i think saying was during her training and the time you're in training it's a little different than when you're operational in the squadron and my experience as a guy with a bunch of other guys was a lot of camaraderie a lot of you know when you had a bad flight somebody was you, you know you had someone there to complain with someone to vent to and you had that essentially you had a network of or like a little brotherhood and the challenge with her was that sometimes there wasn't that support from other guys because other guys whether it be more senior or something were were wary of engaging or you know having that kind of relationship with a female and I think that was a challenge because there weren't there were no other females I think when we were in no. Kingsville there were no other females there and so there there wasn't that hey you know I it's not that dude. There. There's any misunderstanding on what she's supposed to do, but there's that that network of support uh, that you have, and that she didn't have.
0: So were they wary, or were they just young, clueless guys?
4: I think uh, probably both, but I think it was just a little bit magnified because of the tailhook scandal. That's well,
0: that
1: and
3: your yeah. really good looks.
1: <laughs> wow, JT, you. you've learned a lot over twenty years of
3: marriage. I would say. <laughs> Hey, I haven't been married for 20 plus years because I was dumb. Yeah,
4: but you know, though, I, I that experience though, now as looking back on it, I can sit there and say, oh, that was, you know, that was hard. But at the same time, I think that was, it equipped me uh, wonderfully for going forth in my next job because, I, you know, I stayed in a career that had very few females and so so I sort of uh, adapted. And, and now it's, I could probably say I prefer that uh, work environment where, and, and that's what sort of happens. You see, when um, all of us females, uh, when you get into a room and one female comes in there, you'd think we look at each other and go, oh, hey. But instead, we're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> so, because we get used to being the only one. So
1: you're saying it's more territorial, it becomes more territorial. <laughs> yeah, we start
4: peeing all over the room. <laughs>
0: I love it. Well, I have a question for both of you. So, I so I guess I'm kind of so I, I at some point um, uh, Peggy told me when we were talking about talking that you guys wanted to talk or could talk a little bit about POW training, and I guess I'm curious what um, where that as part of your training fits into your memories of um, of that time and maybe why it stands out or why it's um, what, what distinguishes it from maybe other parts of your training.
4: Well, I'll start. Do you mind? Go ahead. Um, yeah, like he's gonna it's, say it's,
1: "mines," right? After he's been yes, married yeah. for twenty years, right? Yeah.
4: Well, there were. I think there were the two things for me about the training that were significant. Is one was the waterboarding, and then two was was getting a hit in the face, those, those were two things that, um, shocking. Uh, yeah, shocking. Uh, So, because I really didn't expect, I mean, I, I kind of, some of the stuff you, you go, oh yeah, yeah, you could see that coming, but I I didn't see those two coming. And what I mean is, so the, uh, again, in the training that I went through, which, um, mine was, um, just a a three days uh, experience, JT's was much longer, but the first part of it, they, they have you out there just sort of being able to handle being, uh, in a wooded environment and, and, um, surviving. And we've gone through that sort of before, but then there's the part where they capture you. And so there was about 30 of us. And the first thing that they, they did when they capture you is once they have everybody, they get all the men, uh, around and they grab whatever females they have and they sort of just bring you out in the middle and and just start to uh, smack you around. So since I was that female, I and it's not you're not being punched with a fist, but open hand. it's an open hand. Just and and they just uh, they just keep doing it and hoping to get one of the guys really right. upset.
1: In other words, the idea is by slapping you around that one of your fellow prisoners will capitulate or something
4: yeah because you've just spent some time out you know bonding and and surviving and, and really just because it's so cold you're having to spoon with each other so it's you know they're getting to know you uh, pretty well and so that's why the first thing they they do is pull the females out to upset them so does it work did
2: it upset them did somebody come to your aid
4: Uh, no, it did upset them, but they don't, they don't really get a chance to come to the aid. And so then that, and so it becomes a layer on layer of sort of upsetting mentally. And so, um, and then, uh, and then they also on that, that same night, they, they brought me over to be, to the waterboarding, um, and, and my whole not knowing how to swim experience, uh, brought that to another level, knowing that was I actually I don't think I
3: knew. No, they usually start an interrogation. And well, then,
4: no, but what I mean is I don't think I knew that I was going to be waterboarded, but when they put they, they put you they put your head down and, and they prevent you from being able to move it. And uh and then uh stick the water hose <laughs> into your into your nose. Um And so, and they, they, the the worst part is they first, they tie you down, but it's, it's when your head can't move. That's when you know something's, something's not right. And, uh, and so, and then the water hose comes. The interesting thing about, uh, the waterboarding is, uh, once going through it now, I I get why, uh, it's, it's used because after that, I mean, I pretty much was, I was, I was done. Compliant. I was compliant. (laughs)
1: Yeah, But, do you, well, uh, JT, did you also have the waterboarding experience as part of your training? Uh,
3: no, I didn't. Um, and not everybody did. It, it was actually... Only, but usually a couple yeah, of people. Very kind of unusual. And usually, I think... So Courtney and I actually did uh, two different trainings. She went through the Navy version of uh, POW training. It, they kind of call it survival, escape, seer, seer school type of stuff. I, I actually did one earlier, and it was with the air force, uh, in Colorado. So mine was like two weeks. Um, so we did, uh, they did not do that. They did other kind of just random acts of, uh, you know, physical strain that just kind of was supposed to wear you down mentally. And then they try and, you know, interrogate you, ask mm-hmm. you questions and they gave you before you started this process, they you got you. put
4: in the box a lot longer. Though. I got put in mm-hmm.
3: the box a lot longer. So mm-hmm. I, I got put in a box of, you know, essentially a four by four, box, um, solitary confinement for almost 48 hours. And, you know, you, and you had to, you know, kind of sit in there in the dark. And so you lose track of time, you know, they keep rattling in the box to try and keep you awake from falling asleep. And, and it just kind of, you know, just where, you know, just like any, any thing you could, uh, imagine where you just kind of wear down, uh mentally and and then they start asking you questions and you're supposed to stick to your script of just name rank social security number not give them any information so uh and that's that's the challenge there and I think what happens in the navy version and I didn't experience that but just from uh Courtney and other friends is that it's a little shorter but it's more intense and uh you know that they just they pick out a couple of people from random times and and put them through that and a lot of times that's so when they get back in the population with everyone else they're like hey i just got you know waterboarded and everyone else is like oh hell i don't want to get waterboarded <laughs> i'm going to tell them everything so they're they're again they're working on your psyche and and uh and trying to get get you that training that hey if you're in this situation how do you react
0: so does it work
2: so i have two questions for JT yeah i want to know one JT were you did were you able to withstand w- during all that or in general, oh no! You crack you know like a uh,
3: like an egg. I think is the the lesson there, and then just like uh, you know the whole the whole point of this training, uh, you know, it goes back to prior conflicts and you know pilots being captured, and then some. You know, how do you you know in the Vietnam War and Korean War how do you how do you handle it when you're in a camp, and you know what do you what's the right thing to do? And really, the the bottom line lesson I think is a life kind of lesson is you're going to break, things are going to not work, but then you reset yourself. So after they break or in Courtney's saying, when you're, you know, after you've been waterboarded or my thing after 48 hours and I break and I said more than I should have or whatever the thing, then I recollect myself. And just like, when you fall down, you get back up and then you start resisting in, in this case again. So just like flying and stuff, when you, you had, you know, good flights and bad flights, but you always you, you shook off the bad flights. The
4: compartmentalization. And, yeah, right. you
3: put it in the little box, and then you move on to the next, and you and you start over again. I think that was a lesson they were drilling in an environment of a of a prisoner of war type of scenario. So there, and that was really, uh, I guess my takeaway was that if you're a prisoner of war, it's going to suck. Don't you know? Don't have any kind of glorified notion that you're going to be this stoic, like you said before, the stoic you know model you know, capture, you're going to break, you're going to get beat. And then, you know, but just reset, don't, don't give up, I guess.
1: Peg, you had another question.
2: And so my second question to that is, so you are, um, you had that kind of training because you already knew you wanted to be a fighter pilot, right? So it's a different kind of training
3: than what Courtney got because she wasn't. Yeah. You know, um, my, I, I did that training when I was at the Naval Academy and. Voluntarily. Th- voluntarily did it. And to <laughs> just give you a kind of idea of my thought process while I was at the Academy was that. uh by volunteering to do this training, it was three weeks of training. I got an extra week off of summer vacation, so instead of having to do four weeks of Navy training, I said I'm going to go do three weeks of survival training, so I can have an extra week of summer vacation at the academy. So uh, that that was my <laughs> my motivation of a of a very wise twenty year old. <laughs> it was all
2: about the week off.
1: So I have a question because waterboarding is a controversial subject and. Uh, It's engendered quite a bit of discussion as the United States has practiced it on prisoners we have captured. Courtney, you've been through it, at least some version of it. What's your view about the U.S. using waterboarding techniques on our prisoners, people we've captured?
3: Yeah, that um, Courtney actually just um stepped out to uh <laughs> to silence the crowd. Um Okay. And that is a, maybe you should is, just bring I, the kids. I'm into gonna the actually room. I'm gonna repeat that question for her when she pops back in because I think she would be uh most because I, I have not experienced it. Um but yes, we were, you know, that definitely aware of its controversy uh, and its use and, and even, you know, aware of Senator McCain's stance and a lot of former uh you know, congressmen, senators that, uh, you know, have military experience and, and or have been through, you know, the situations that he they've been in. And uh, uh, I think that uh, Courtney's back, so I will definitely fill her in on that question. I I don't have a, a very well thought out response, so I'm going to let her.
1: What's the? Reason? I'll repeat it. Courtney, the question is, uh, waterboarding is a controversial subject because there has been a great deal of discussion about the U.S. using that technique on prisoners we've captured, and I'm wondering, given your experience, how you feel about the u s using it on prisoners we've captured well,
4: I would say what I would say before, which is it's effective um, and it it isn't causing really bodily harm as much as as it is just scary now the I would say though. It could be that the waterboarding that I got was maybe just a level two out of ten, and they're getting a ten out of ten because of it being a real thing. But as far as um, do I think it should be used personally, I I say yes.
1: You you wouldn't consider it a form of torture, or do you think it's okay to
4: torture prisoners? I would say when you're talking about uh, the type of people that you're trying to get information out of where they're pretty much, it's it's such an asymmetric threat that we have these days. We don't, uh, we're not having battles anymore. We're having just singular people. It's it's a really different fight than we had when we were in the military. And um, so the tactics have to adapt to that. And so and, and in this case, um, one of those tactics being the uh, waterboarding, I would say, is necessary just due to the, the change of threat. Okay. So Courtney, I was friends with Courtney when she was applying to
2: colleges, and the Naval Academy was not something that she was ever talking about. And she kind of mentioned that at the beginning when she said she went to play volleyball. Her, your stepdad, Tom, he was in the Navy, is that correct?
4: As a, a doctor. He was a doctor. A
2: doctor. Okay. But JT, did you always know you wanted to go there? You come from a Navy family. So was that always your goal was to go to the Naval Academy?
3: Uh, No. Actually, I had a different uh, track. I actually wanted to go uh, out of high school. I was looking at Ivy League schools, and I didn't get in, so I went to a prep school. And the prep school is an Ivy League-type prep school. And while I was there, that's when I decided I'd like to go to the Naval Academy. I didn't feel quite... Like it fit me, but I did have, um, uh, friends and, and my older sister was at the time at the Naval Academy. So I had familiarity with the Academy, but no, it was not a, uh, something that, that I grew up knowing I wanted to do. It kind of came, uh, later, I guess, even after high school.
0: So as time has gone by, you guys have had some, and you guys have kids, and you're it's, and this is getting further away in the past. How have your how have your feelings changed about I don't know both the training because it sounds like this part of it was probably the most one of the most intense things you experienced in the training, but the training in general, and maybe even your service time. Like how how have your feelings changed in the last
4: few years? My feelings oh, about the military, I don't, you know, I have uh, I have fond feelings about the way the Navy. Um, is and you know, because especially I guess now, because I work with so many Air Force guys, um, I have a better
0: appreciation
4: for the Navy. That's not
0: inside, that's real, that's pretty outside. Yeah. We
3: get it.
1: What, but, but, but is there still, there is a, there is a still a lot of. Uh, differences among the different services in terms of the uh, oh yeah, so there is yeah. there is still a sense of rivalry among the different services.
4: I, oh yeah, A healthy sense, yeah, a healthy yeah, a healthy rivalry for sure. Um,
1: well, what, what how what makes it healthy as opposed to an unhealthy rivalry? I would say
4: healthy in that because when we get together, there's a a, a a respect, and you know, a classic example would be the Army Navy game when when we're having to force to work together, um, it's you know it, it, it works out because in general,
3: similarities. yeah, yeah there's the similarity yeah, the
4: similarities you know override the differences. but um, the Navy, our training, especially the flight training is is so different in that because we fly around a carrier and there's so much radio silence, you're given a lot of leeway to just make things happen. And, um, which is fantastic as a pilot, but in the air force, that's not the case because well, one, they don't fly around the carrier and there isn't that sort of, um, uh, environment. So they have, there's, it's very rule driven. You can't, you can't go outside of what they say you're allowed. So everything is scripted. And if you go away from that, um, you get in trouble. And, and so the way that they, uh, the way that they fly, I would say, cause that's all I know is, uh is very different, and so at Southwest, when I fly with a Navy guy, we kind of look at each other like, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome.
1: Do any of your, are any of your children interested in learning how to fly?
4: Yeah. Uh, my seven-year-old has, has said that she, that's what she wants to do. Yeah. What
1: do, what do you think about, there are some people who take kids, very young kids, and start giving them flying lessons. What do you guys think about that?
4: Flying is, uh, I don't think anything that you need to start early, because yeah, it's it it's not it's not a <clears throat> skill. I think that takes that long to become uh, good at.
3: Yeah, I think the uh, I think a lot of times uh, for our, our experience in the flight training is uh, I had zero flight experience before I started flight training, and um, and I in flight training there were guys who had a lot. A lot of experience. And the Navy kind of likes a less experience because then they can train you the way well, you are. Well, and
4: actually in, in a current, let's just talk about like right now, Southwest is um, is hiring. And I had a guy say, he said, I had difficulty getting hired because I had over 10,000 hours of flying experience. And Southwest only wanted pilots that had somewhere around five thousand, two 000 to 5,000 uh, hours because – they thought that maybe that they were easier to train or more adaptable. They
3: can kind of mold you how they want. Yeah. How they want you to to be trained. Right. So
4: that's funny.
2: That's that happens in my job as a nurse. Like if yeah. I wanted to go work in an emergency room right now, they don't like to hire twenty year nurses because they like to hire new ones who they can train the way they want them, which is kind of interesting. To right. That. So JT, you stayed active. I don't even know what the terminology is, but you stayed, whatever, active longer than Courtney did. And then you had to, you got called to serve in Iraq, correct, in 2008 oh, or 2009?
3: Yes. Uh, so what um, when we got winged, uh, so at a Naval Academy, you owe five years. But if you become a pilot, you owe eight years. So um, when we got winged, we had an eight-year active duty commitment.
4: Which has now changed to, I think,
3: 10. Now it's changed to 10 currently. So what uh, – both Courtney and I separated after our active duty commitment was was after our eight years after getting wing was I stayed in the reserves um, when I was in law school, so I was a, a Navy reservist, so I wasn't active duty anymore. Uh, so just you know one week in a month, two weeks a year while I was going through law school, and then in two thousand and eight, I got. Uh, as a reservist, I recalled active duty for uh, for a year. So, in, the, in that uh, during that time frame in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Navy most of that was on in on in the country, and so the Navy wasn't doing much. So, the Navy in the needs of the Navy said, "Hey, we can help out our Army and Air Force brethren if you guys got some jobs you need filled, we'll volunteer our personnel." And so, I. I fit the bill of someone that needed to fill a role. So I got recalled and, and uh, activated, put on active duty, and sent to – I was in Iraq for just over a year or under a year. What planes did you guys fly?
4: Well, actually, you weren't uh, able to fly. That was the, the real
3: well, – Yeah, rumor. I was an F-18 pilot uh, when I was active duty, and then when I got uh, recalled to active duty, I was I was – uh, years out of the cockpit. Oh so. wait, were you
4: asking what planes, just in general?
3: I think we, so, but yeah, we,
1: yeah. What in general did you fly?
4: Oh, okay. Um,
3: no, the the uh, the first plane you fly is no well, the training the outside train of course. the
4: training planes. Was, uh, we are operational um, when we were um, out in the fleet. I flew um, an ES three, which uh, was involved with uh, intelligence collecting intelligence, and then uh, the, once the militaries went joint. They decommissioned that aircraft. So I just quickly went over to the S3, which was for reconnaissance. It was really just for anti-submarine, but that mission was dying away also from, so uh, we just did refueling around the carrier for the most part was our primary mission for the, the fighter guys. So very unglamorous. And then after that, we uh were finally able to get stationed together, and I flew sort of some civilian type aircraft which was a uh, a metro liner which i was bringing managers between two different naval bases and then into the the next one was the a c nine which was transport and then t
3: thirty nine too yeah
1: so j t being on active duty uh did it have any impact on your view of the conflict over there, and do you feel like there's anything about the conflict that people in the United States don't understand or don't have a full picture of?
3: So that for that year in uh, 0809, I I think that that's, a, again, that's a very... Thoughtful question. You were, you were in a very <laughs> – Were you promised there would be no position? thoughtful
1: questions
3: or something? <laughs>
4: well, no, no, but his – not his, an impression that I, think, I would that have that was to do a lot of most, That was probably the most super secret mission, though, that you had.
1: Oh, so I, I was, don't want you to talk about anything you can't talk about. I just – more in no, general no, I can impression definitely, of the conflict. Yeah, general what,
3: impression. I think if uh, – that I don't think people had an awareness of the uh, degree of – I guess, the the threat and how and I guess my my general takeaway from that time there is if we weren't in there addressing the threat that they would be eventually be over here and doing things. So our time, the time that I spent with the unit and what we did, I think, put back the ability of the terrorist threat in that country to operate uh, 10 to 15 years because every day they were losing, uh, members of their, of their command structure and their team. And it wasn't that they, we were, it wasn't, we were capturing them. We weren't necessarily, you know, uh, killing, but, uh, and it was, you know, influencing them. And in, 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 I guess a, a very, uh, real way where, um, uh, they knew that if they were conducting nefarious activities that their door would be opened in the middle of the night um, and that it wasn't a good way to to kind of get by in life. So I think that was um, – and I, I think when we left and, and that uh, ISIS threat regenerated, uh, personally I wasn't surprised because the only reason it hadn't was because we were there. And That's not – I'm not saying that the answer is – Constant uh, presence, presence or occupation, but it didn't really surprise me uh, that that happened. Well, what
1: is that? Is that the answer, though? Should we think about this as essentially permanent U.S. military presence over there?
3: No, I don't think it is. I think there's a, uh, and again, I don't have that answer, but I think there is a way to influence the population that there's a better, there's a better way of being governed because a lot of times it's a, you know, most of the population was in favor of our presence because it meant security and predictability because they, they weren't going to be, uh, arbitrary, you know, what's the rule of law and justice, you know, all those things about having some predictability, like, Hey, I can do this and sell this and do this. And nobody's going to come and just take my stuff, right? There's uh, property and possession, all these, these concepts that maybe are Western and not is ingrained in that area of the country or the world. But, uh, by us being there and showing them that you can have a essentially a, a predictable and existence i think uh, and then empower them and in a meaningful way to take control of their own lives i guess but it's not constant occupation it's it's education and 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 showing by doing it. and the first thing though and this goes back in history the first thing is you provide security for the local population and that's what we did when we were over there the places that ISIS first took over were the places that we were the most when I was when I was in country.
2: So did that experience, because that was kind of stressful, you guys had just bought a house that needed work and then you had two young children. Do you think you would have, um, would you have stayed in the Navy, because you're not in the Navy anymore, is that correct?
3: That's yeah. correct, yeah, we're, we're both down. Okay,
2: so do you think you would have stayed in if you wouldn't have had to leave for that year?
4: Oh, that's uh, a no. good question. Yeah, you know <laughs> no, that was that. No, I think you're right. That was as far as in the reserves. That was a, that was a backbreaker. Um, b- mostly though, because it came very out of the blue. Uh, we had just moved, and his unit sort of just tagged him, and so that when you're in, you there there is a cycle of. You have a you have a shore tour. You have a sea tour. There's a certain rhythm to it, and this was so unpredictable that we. You're right. It did uh, sort of expedite us.
3: Sure, and I, at that time, you know, I had after that year of active duty plus my reserve, I, I had a total of uh, almost 16 years of service. Most people would say that we should have stayed in and gotten a
4: retirement, <laughs> but yeah, that that experience was that's yeah that's kind of what I was thinking
3: that you were so close
4: to getting your yeah you're right and a lot of people would say what were were you thinking you could have just
3: but yeah to me it was personal too because I didn't I wasn't at a place where I'm like yeah I I'm willing to serve I kind of had after that experience I was like yep I'm done and not you know I had people say to me well you could do this this they couldn't recall you again and you could just essentially just put in time and and you'll get your 20 and I was like "Nah, that's that's not how I I okay. I approach it and uh so I said look I'm I've done my time I've done my service and uh I'm going to move Thank on Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm out.
1: Can I ask you a question? <laughs> how does your experience both of you being in the military inform your personal political views or do you think it informs it at all?
4: Mm. Oh, well, I think it it, it influences um our political views a lot, but at the same time, I mean most people always assume well you're military, so you're a republican mm-hmm. um and i would I would say we probably lean a little bit that but we're a little- but um but when you go through the experience like like you had and you kind of you see, you
1: being JT, right? I'm sorry. Yes, no, that's all right. We just want to make sure everybody understands. Right, you JT's is.
4: experience, yeah. and and then him talking about and and then other friends. You know, we had another military friend of ours who was General McChrystal. He was a Marine, and General McChrystal had him basically
3: undercover, embedded with embedded. Our band tribe for a, a year.
4: When you get an understanding that they're they are just like us, people trying to make their way we have a, m- a little bit more mixed view
1: well can you give a specific example of a foreign policy issue that you guys feel strongly I think it about? informs
3: us on on some areas well uh, but i don't think it defines us in political well foreign policy type of thing so when if a politician or someone's talking about a foreign policy or you know something <laughs> i think that we're going to have a maybe a stronger opinion or not not agree with it, maybe quicker, or just have a difference of opinion, maybe. I don't know. I kind of alluded to it when, um, you know, during the Obama administration, we said, hey, we're leaving. I said, you can't, you know, that was, to me, that was a, a, a blatant mistake. You can't, you can't tell them we're leaving. You know, we, even if you leave, just do it. Don't, you can't announce it because essentially then everybody just behaved for the certain period of time and waited till the president's left. And then, you know, it's like telling the kids like, hey, uh, we're going out. We're going to be away for a week on, you know, April 1st. All right. So April 2nd, they're going to have the high school kids at us. They're going to have the party. So, <laughs> so when you leave your kids, you try to
1: surprise them and not give them a chance to plan at it. Totally. Um, but I got totally. that. Yeah. It, it, All of a sudden they wake light, up and mom and dad are gone. Let me ask a question a different way. Sometimes it strikes me, and obviously I have no military experience whatsoever, but it strikes me that there are some politicians who are very quick to advocate. I'm not talking about places where we already have troops, but they're very quick to advocate sending in U.S. troops into certain situations. And and some of these politicians, not all of them, but some of them have had no more military experience than I have. And I wonder... You guys have been in the military and you've been in some cases in a combat situation or something approaching a combat situation. I wonder how you feel about that. I mean, when is the right time that we should be sending in troops and when is the right time for us to say, wait a minute, do we really need to send troops in there?
4: Yeah, well, the, I'd say that's where the the difficult issue on that is because – And this is what we know is that when the situation in theater is not what everybody knows it to be, the whole sending in troops.
3: Yeah, it's not.
4: But you're right because um, that's where we say we're we're kind of, we're a little bit in the middle being from the military is that we know that there are times when it's just uh, said as a political statement. And then other times when there's a threat that because of (laughs) our security level, People just don't even know, really know what that threat is, but maybe the politician does.
3: Well, and you know, I, I, to be clear, the one thing our military experience is, you, you don't really decide, right? So you you took an oath, to support, defend the constitution, et cetera. Leaders pointed, they make decisions, You do. They're politicians. That's their profession. And then to yeah. the highest uh, professionals I dealt with, we we are we stay in our lane, which is military operation. You tell me I'm taking that target. All right, I'm going to tell you how to do it. You're telling me I'm not taking it? I'm not taking it. I'm, I'm waiting. You know, there's a, in the, the leadership structure of the military, and the general and admirals level, they they don't do the politics, they do the operations. So, sure. you know, the question politicians is, are for the professional politicians. And right. I'll, I'll use that term broadly. And uh, so, where, how I feel about it as a former military guy is that sometimes I don't think the politicians have all the information, sometimes I'm pretty sure they don't. And then that those once because they do their, get because of you, their security level. Once they do get the information, their opinions may change.
0: I'm curious about how your how that how that training are, are and how your experience in military with that mindset because I get that mindset right and and I I feel and like I said earlier I feel like the older I get the more I get that mindset it's weird I like getting things done now. <laughs> And I'm curious how much how much you guys think that the training you guys had applies to your lives now mm-hmm. in terms of how you approach getting things done in life or work.
4: Oh, yeah. I would say definitely. Yeah, um, I think
3: it shapes who we are.
4: Yeah, it makes us uh, more efficient, uh, but also just as far as some of the challenges of life, maintaining your fitness, your health, cutting things out of your life that um, are not working for you.
3: Not being it's afraid to make changes. Not being
4: afraid to make – yeah, the adaptability. So that's the, that's the positive side. On the yeah. negative side, I would say the ability to compartmentalize may occasionally have you uh, – have difficulty dealing with uh, other people's emotions because we just are trained to shove things and put things away. So maybe a lack of empathy or compassion – can I comment on that as an observer
2: of Courtney and jt that I uh would agree that the military they' are, they're different than I think any other couple I know or any other family in a, in a lot of ways even I was over there once and their freshman in high school was bored and we were all sitting around having drinks and he came up and put his head on his dad's shoulder and he said dad i'm bored and jt said go downstairs and do 50 push-ups and he did it it was awesome <laughs> I, I thought don't, what a great thing to go they, tell your 14 year old when he's bored 50, though, so i think there were
3: about 10 that were good and <laughs> the other 40 he had to do over
1: that's all right are all do all your kids do
4: push-ups
3: a uh, plank, at least. Yeah, we start them off at plank, and then they yeah. graduate up We had to a push push family ups. plank challenge. I Any mean, of you ever rebelled against that? <laughs> uh, rebellions are squashed. <laughs> uh, quickly and swiftly. We <laughs> act swiftly. And Do you, with, you guys and use waterboarding force. on the kids, or is there yeah, anything well, on know, that? We there's should... ways you can get a bathtub tour. That, uh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh, my kidding.
1: God. <laughs> you know, this is, does go out to the public, JT. Yes, you know? Yeah.
2: I notice it in other ways, too. I do think you guys handle your adversities extremely well. And there's not a whole lot of uh, feeling sorry for yourself because you've had your share of troubles like everybody has. And you guys always maintain your sense of humor and your, like you said, your discipline in taking care of yourselves. And yeah, I think it's admirable.
0: Well, Courtney, you Courtney, you left the you left the you you left and and probably transitioned into a what looks like a kind of a, a pretty traditional career path, straightforward. JT, I'm curious about you. What was your how was it? Lo- what was it like transitioning from you no know, not taking getting the 20 years, getting the pension, staying in the system long enough to do that, and transitioning to uh, the private sector? How was that?
3: It was challenging. I think the uh, the private sector and even going into law school was uh, a a challenge. Uh, just trying to retrain my brain in some ways to think a little differently but I actually enjoyed that uh, and I still do enjoy that challenge because you know trying to like Courtney mentioned some of the good things uh training and then maybe improve on some of the other things so you like
4: you liked the the total educate being in class again you really enjoyed. yeah I really enjoyed studying history philosophy law the whole I mean that was sort of
3: and it was something I felt that in some ways that I go into naval academy and you know right into flight training that you know I'd it's something I left unturned that I wanted to kind of revisit. So that was – it was interesting. Uh, once I got out of law school and joined the private sector, it was uh, eye-opening on um, just uh, how things work in a capitalistic society. Because when you're in the military, you uh, you just do your work and every two weeks you get a paycheck. And then uh, when you're in the private sector – We actually have a
4: lot paycheck. of our friends who are retiring right now having um, – Transitioning. Not, transitioning. Challenges. and. You can you can just feel uh, the tension because they got there twenty years. A lot of them are going to um, Amazon as
3: managers, and they they say that because it's a similar environment is what we've uh-huh. been told to sure. some of our friends. Yeah, because the
4: Amazon the warehouses are are huge and and there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a physicality to it because they have to. Walk a few miles to cover everything, and there's a lot of people to manage that sort of thing. So a lot of them are sort of finding um, mm-hmm. that sort of job. Uh,
0: a natural transition. A natural
4: transition, but interesting. The the difficulty I would say is the lack of having all the people around you. That so it's it's more difficult on the spouse because all the people that are in a similar situation to you are no longer around because you've moved to a non military city in a lot of cases.
1: So I want to ask each of you separately or together, if the answer is the same, if there is a public figure, current public figure that you most admire and a current public figure that you least admire. A current
4: public figure. Politician.
1: Doesn't have to be a politician, but somebody, a leader. Somebody somebody that that you admire. Like Taylor
4: Swift? Does that count? I, I mean, you know, I really loved, um, when we were the election, I, I really loved Ben Carson.
3: Uh, for, yeah, I don't know for, uh, I just actually, or I should
4: say the doctor. Ben Carson. Yeah.
3: I just yeah. got in a strange way, got introduced to someone in the private sector and he released a book and I'm, I wouldn't say I admire, but I'm very fascinated by what he has to say. His name is Ray Dalio. He's a hedge fund manager. And, uh. I just I don't know that I admire him, but I'm very curious as to some of the things he has to say and He's got a book that I'm reading.
1: What so. about on the other side of the coin, somebody you disapprove of or don't admire? Dis-
4: or
3: I don't know. I don't you spend know, a lot of time I disapproving say, of
4: people. I yeah, guess. that's that. You know, I think we're so tr- we're so trained to not to not have that because it's like the way that uh, we look at uh, all of them is more in a in a with a curiosity than a an a, a like or don't like you know, with our current president, I I if someone said do you like him, I'd say, Well, I, I don't like or dislike. I, I have I have things about him that I, I dislike and but I'm I'm more uh, bemused. So can I
2: change the subject a second to get closer to wrapping up? Sure. Um so Jim is a giant movie buff. I guess John is too, but I get the impression that Jim sees every movie out there. So, uh, JT, tell, me, tell us again the name
3: of the movie that you're in at the
2: end. JT's in a movie, Jim. What
1: movie are you in, JT?
3: You, you can't tell it's me, but um, Behind Enemy Lines was a movie with Owen Wilson and Gene Hackman. And uh, there were some scenes that were filmed on the aircraft carrier. And I was the pilot uh, flying around the aircraft carrier. Just around the aircraft carrier.
1: And did you get to meet Owen Wilson or Gene Hackman?
3: Gene Hackman, Owen Wilson, and some of the other guys I can't remember. He's uh, he's Brian guy. Keith. Yeah, is that his name? Brian yeah. Keith. No,
4: wow. no, sorry, but somebody he's a B actor. Okay. I probably I'm probably getting the the wrong. The guy one.
3: who was he he was the actor he's with a, Richard Gere in uh, Officer and Gentleman. He David was, Keith, right? Was
1: that David Keith?
3: David Keith. Yes. Yeah, David much. Keith. I think Brian Keith
1: passed away a few years ago so i don't
3: know okay yeah, and then there was a, another guy that um he looks very familiar but i can't remember his name
1: so obviously movies, so. just like you guys are unimpressed by public figures generally you're unimpressed by movie stars because you can't even remember <laughs> their
3: name. i would say yeah I, you know who does uh, so impress story, you guys obviously this podcast
1: yeah Yes, um the, the people on this podcast are really No, impressive. I don't yeah. think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. But anyway, Peck, I want to just make it clear. I only saw 96 films during 2017.
2: Oh wow. So. You were I crazy. mean, 96
1: films in the movie theater. This what doesn't happened count to you? films that I saw at home. Such a letdown. Well, but I hope that 2018
2: is better for you this year.
1: Well, I'm going to try to get I'm going to try to get up because if I get uh I think if I do 115 during 2018, I will be at a lifetime of 3,200 films, unique films in movie theaters. Oh, my so. God. You could have had a
2: really nice, nice car. I, I don't <laughs> actually have a car, Peg. So oh, I should have known I that. I don't know. Um, so do we need to wrap up or does anybody have anything else, any final thoughts?
0: This is great. Fantastic. I'm so happy.
2: I will wrap up and say, first of all, this was a pleasure we could, I'm sure all of us have about an hour's worth of or more questions to ask you guys thank you so much for joining us
4: yeah i'm sorry we were we were less than forthcoming on the political no <laughs> no 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 fine. No, no we want and you to thank you highly trained think. to keep our mouth shut <laughs> no that's okay
3: right, i was invoking that's my okay. prisoner of war training
4: <laughs> no that's okay yeah.
1: so i want to know which is more torturous the prisoner of war training or raising four
2: children raising four children or being on this children. podcast yeah. <laughs> Or being
1: on this podcast while you're raising four children. That may be the conversation.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say say thanks to the kids, too, for uh, not burning down the house during this last hour and a
4: half. I think the um, next
1: time we'll have your kids on and ask them a bunch of these
3: questions. And oh, see my gosh, what that would be so yeah. fun. That would be fun to see what they're. Any
4: chance is. I can hang with you,
2: Peg, I'll take it. <laughs> and then I also want to just say thank you, guys. Thanks for your service.
4: Oh, thank Agreed.
2: you. And we will be returning as always unfortunately for our 12 <laughs> listeners in two weeks I don't it know when airs this airs.
1: on January
0: 18th it doesn't really air either it kind of internets you can
1: start contacting your yeah, lawyers you can check with your it lawyer drops I drops. think is the right term right?
0: sure like a Taylor Swift album
2: <laughs> all right I think that's it right